Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today we have for you a brand new episode just come out from under the 60-day embargo period during which our participating newspapers have exclusive rights. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on November 1st of 2023 under the headline, Automo Bubble Was a Part of the Deschutes River Railroad War. Here we go. Sometime in the late spring of 1909, at the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company's ticket booth in Portland, a 19-year-old man named Jim Morell laid down his last two dollars for a ticket on the Bailey Gatzert, the famous Columbia River sternwheeler, known to the locals who resented its wake as the Daily Bastard, but that's another story. His destination? The Dalles. Morell was from Colorado originally. Just now, he was at loose ends, drifting through Portland, looking for work. He thought he might find it in the Dalles. Someone had told him about a great railroad war playing out near the Dalles, as railroad magnates E. H. Harriman of the Union Pacific and James J. Hill of the Great Northern scrambled to be the first to punch a railroad line through the Columbia Gorge into Bend. Harriman's road was called the Deschutes Railroad, two words in the incorporation papers. Hill was calling his the Oregon Trunk Railroad. Although still a young man, Morell had some experience with gasoline-powered equipment and thought this might be a good employment opportunity for him, so he had gambled his last two bucks, which was worth roughly $65 in modern money, to get to the scene, in hopes that he could land a job. Morrill didn't look like much when he arrived. On the journey, his hat, a battered brown derby, had gotten split between brim and crown. His hair poked through the hat above the brim, making for a pretty comical appearance. Luckily, his hair was also brown, so it looked okay from far away. Upon his arrival, Morrill was met by a friend, probably the one who had told him there was work to be had. Morrell's friend staked him to a meal and a flophouse bunk, and the next day he wasted no time in seeking out J.D. Porter, who, along with his brother Johnson Porter, ran the construction company that had the Northern Pacific contract, the James J. Hill people. Porter's first question after Morrell introduced himself was straight and to the point. Do you know how to skin a bubble? he asked. The question was a reference to a popular song that had recently come out. In My Merry Oldsmobile, a waltz written by Gus Edwards and Vincent P. Bryan in 1905. It had gotten very popular, first as sheet music and later on shellac phonograph records, and had created something of a pop culture sensation, one of the very first such. The chorus of the song goes, in part, No, I'm, I'm not going to sing it for you. For one thing, because I don't really know the tune. But the lyrics go, Come away with me, Lucille, in my merry Oldsmobile. Down the road of life we'll fly, automobubbling, you and I. The song was slightly scandalous in 1905. It was basically an invitation to an elopement. The chorus goes on, To the, to the church we'll swiftly steal, then our wedding bells will peal. You can go as far as you like with me in my merry Oldsmobile. Yeah, so it was a little bit edgy and very, very popular. 
Now, a mule skinner was popular slang for a driver of mule teams, so accordingly a bubble skinner would be a driver of automobubbles. The Porter brothers had bought one of the contraptions in the hopes that it would enable them to skip around the country quickly, negotiating land sales and rights of way and doing other errands along the route. They'd taken delivery of a 1908 Studebaker Garford touring car, a great big specimen with space for four passengers plus the driver, powered by an enormous four-cylinder engine, 372 cubic inches, which is roughly 6.1 liters. But nobody on their crews knew how to skin it. Luckily for the porters and for young Mr. Morell, he did. So they hired him on the spot. As you can imagine, automobile bubbling was a much more arduous job in 1909 than it is today, especially in a monster like that one. The flathead engine in it, which, although it was rated at less than 40 horsepower, was about the size of what you'd find in a modern Ford F-350, had to be started with a hand crank. It was a tough enough job that the crank regularly got bent and had to be straightened out with a blacksmith's hammer. And famously, it would also break the driver's arm if he didn't do it just right. The spark timing had to be advanced to just the right spot, the mixture had to be managed on the go by the driver, and the throttle was hand-operated like on an old farm tractor. All these inputs had to be juggled in real time while managing the clutch and brake and steering the car and occasionally repairing it on the fly. This car had no electrical system, the headlights were carbide lamps, and the ignition used a magneto, which was prone to conking out if it got even slightly damp. It was also fairly top-heavy, so tipping it over was a constant hazard. It had brakes, but only on the back axle, and they were very weak. Morel had to mostly use engine compression to slow the car on steep grades, like heavy truck drivers do today when descending long highway grades like Cabbage Hill on Interstate 84 between LeGrand and Pendleton. I guess its official name is Emigrant Hill, but everybody calls it Cabbage Hill. Anyway, when Morell first set out along the rutted and rocky wagon roads along the railroad right away, the Porter brothers stood on the running boards, ready to jump off if it should look like he was about to crash it. They soon got comfortable, though, as he demonstrated his skill with the machine. As mentioned, the Porter boys were working for the Hill Railroad, so their crews were racing to lay their tracks down on one side of the river while the Harriman Railroad's contractors, the Tuhi brothers, raced up the other. There was not much love lost between the two sets of crews. They fought pitched battles with each other with fists and sometimes pick handles when they got the chance. Harriman and Hill had been business rivals for decades, but in their later years the rivalry had turned into a bitter personal feud. It mostly stemmed from an incident in 1901 when Harriman basically tried to pull off a hostile takeover of Hill's Railroad while Hill's biggest financial backer, J. Pierpoint Morgan, was away on vacation. He nearly succeeded, partially crashing the stock market in the process, and after that the two men cordially hated each other. Most locals were rooting for Hill. Harriman had earned a reputation in Oregon for doing as little as possible in terms of railroad building. There wasn't really much in the way of business in Oregon beyond timber and agriculture, so once Portland and the Willamette Valley had been taken care of, Harriman had always found other locations more worthwhile to invest in. What he did do, though, several times, was to keep a close eye on any small railroad projects that looked like they might develop into a real competition and scare them off by announcing with great fanfare that the mighty Union Pacific or Southern Pacific, which he also owned, was about to go into direct competition with them. 
This happened in 1902 with a planned rail connection to Coos Bay when Harriman went so far as to start construction, including a tunnel near Elkton, before abandoning the project the minute the competition gave up. It had sort of happened in the Deschutes River line, too. Harriman had formed his company, the Deschutes Railroad, three years before and announced grand plans to start construction any day now, but then nothing had happened until Hill started building his competing line. When that happened, Harriman sent his usual contractors, the Tuohy brothers, as I mentioned, to start the job, and Hill, who had incorporated his line as the Oregon Trunk, contracted with the Porter brothers, whom we have already discussed. The rival gangs of men working sometimes within sight of each other did everything they could to slow one another down. There were incidents of men taking pot shots at the enemy camp, not trying to hit anyone, but just to make them nervous. If a blasting project could be arranged to throw rocks across the river at the other side's camp and gear, it would be. There was a lot of blasting done on both lines, and some of it was truly spectacular. The crews would dig coyote holes, as they called them, in the rocks, big enough for a man to crawl inside, and they would fill them all the way to the top with blasting powder and touch them off. Both crews also snuck around at night trying to stampede each other's herds of cattle and blow up their reserves of blasting powder. You know, anything to slow them down. So far as is known, nobody got killed, but several people did get hurt. At one point, Oregon Trunk Railroad President John Stevens, who was Hill's top lieutenant on the job, learned that the Tuohy brothers had built a wagon road across a 230-acre parcel of private land to access the nearest water supply. Stevens promptly bought the land. Actually, he just bought an option on it, but it came with some property rights, which gave him the right to fence it off and hang no trespassing signs everywhere and station armed guards, which he proceeded to do. The two he brothers complained to the sheriff, who came out to the scene with a county judge and some other notables to try to negotiate an arrangement, but some of the Porter brothers' workers got excited and started a big knockdown drag out in which battling crews jumped the sheriff and the judge and chased their horses off into the hills. This, naturally, did not help their cause in court a little later, and the Deschutes crews ended up getting their access restored. Another memorable event happened when the Porter brothers learned that a blind pig, that would be an illegal saloon, which had gone into business in a tent with a huge barrel of alcohol close by the workers' camp. Consequently, everyone in the camp was blind drunk all the time, and no work was getting done. Johnson Porter told the subcontractor to get all his men away from the blind pig for the next few hours. Then, calling for Jim Morell, the bubble skinner, he asked if the bubble was ready. It was. Morell drove Porter out to a rocky outcropping just behind the blind pig, which was located in a tent near the canyon wall. Some distance away, they could see the tents where the moonshiners slept. Porter got three sticks of dynamite which he had tied together, lit the fuse, threw it into the tent with the blind pig in it, and hurried back to the car, and they drove away. Behind them, a nice, satisfying explosion shook the canyon walls, and later that day, Morel saw the bootleggers trudging out of the canyon to the stage station, carrying their bags. The explosion had burst their barrel and spilled all the booze. They were out of business. What a shame, huh? The Railroad War burned hot and fierce for most of that year, but then something happened to change things. Harriman died. He succumbed to stomach cancer at the age of 61 in mid-September of 1909. You know, when a fellow thinks about being a Napoleon of industry, that's not what he wants in common with Napoleon, stomach cancer. Other things, maybe not all the other things, but anyway... 
So after Harriman's death, the two crews mostly stopped feuding, and they even helped each other out from time to time and agreed to share some of the bits of -of right-of-way. With the personal drama all out of the picture, the two crews were able to focus on their work and passenger service to bend on the new railroad lines started in November of 1911. Key sources in this story included works by James F. Morell and Giles French, Leon Sparoff, Tor Hansen, Ward Tonsfeld, and Paul G. Clayson's. our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I sure hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find the full citations and visuals that go with today's show. I was going to pitch our latest Offbeat Oregon book, Bad Ideas and Horrible People, which has been just on the cusp of being ready to go for like literally half a year now. I'm pretty sure that by the time you hear this, it will be ready to go. But I don't want to jinx myself and say anything about it. But basically, right now, we're just working on cover design. 
Everything else is done. So by the time you hear this, it should be out there and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be the biggest of the three extant Offbeat Oregon books and I think the most entertaining. So do check it out. And if it's not out, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> check it out when it comes out. Anyway, uh, this podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficarra. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Oregon History comes out once per weekday, usually around 6 a.m., so it won't be long before the next episode is on your device and ready for you to queue up. And until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the weekend with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.